0: So, last words of Jesus. All right, if you've got your Bibles, we would read this in Luke. Now, here's the story. Like, Jesus utters this last statement from the cross. Matthew, Mark, and John, all they record is that Jesus says something, like, he cries out in a loud voice, and then he gives up his spirit. Luke, who's the physician who has a more detailed account of Christ's life, he records the exact words. He says, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about remez, right? Remember, How many of us remember what remez is? All right. Remez is when when the rabbi would give just a few words of something and then the people who were listening would understand the entire concept. All right. So like we use the idea of Bon Jovi, like you give love a. Right. That's remez. All right. And so Jesus was doing the same thing with the people who were walking around. And so when he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Do you know what he was quoting from? Oh, Close. (laughs) Somebody said Bon Jovi, it was close. He was quoting from Psalms 31, all right? Now, we're not going to tool all the way through Psalms 31 because I want to get to the power of what Psalms 31 means for believers, all right? So if if you put Christ on, this is what it plays out into, and I'm just going to warn you up front, you may not want to hear all that it says, all right? So Psalms 31 says this, "...in you, Lord, I have taken refuge." God. And so we make the argument that although Jesus is suffering from the cross like crazy, this is what's in his heart. Otherwise he wouldn't have sent it out. So out of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what Jesus teaches. And so this is running through his mind. Now I want to take a few seconds just to kind of walk you through a couple pieces. It says in you, Lord, I have taken. Is that past or present verb? Past. So it's a declaration. It doesn't mean that Jesus is starting to or that he's moving into. It means that he already has. And so he starts off with that context. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Again, you see his body beat to smithereens, but yet you see his heart in just the opposite manner. And he says, let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Now, here's the thing I want to lean into this verse for you, all right? There's, there's two ways that you can take this verse. One's the way that Jesus did it, and one's the way that you want to do it, all right? <laughs> and so this is being, A, delivered in Jesus's righteousness versus you being delivered in your righteousness, all right? So let me give you an example of how these work, all right? Um, about six years ago, I'm on staff at a church called Crossroads, All right. We hired this guy, big man, um, big, strong shepherd, um, really good with people. Like he just looks like on the outside, like he's rocking for the Lord. All right. We're like, man, this is great. Like, how did we get this guy? Well, that's the question. Like, how did we get this guy? Right. And and as the story begins to unfold, there's problems all over in his walk. So his marriage is in shambles. He's very divisive. He starts a bunch of small groups of which he's in control of, and you can just start to see this thing going bad. But it was more to the fact that there was no humility in his heart that was really what was, what was kind of sending a flag to us. And so one day I just said, hey, I said, man, here, here's the thing. Like We're sitting around with the elders, and there's an elephant in the room, and I'm like, dude, it's like, man, he, here's what I'm watching. I'm watching your marriage fall apart. Like I'm watching you do some stuff with women that you shouldn't be doing. Like I'm, I'm watching you never serve. Like I'm, I'm watching you um, be divisive and I'm not seeing any humility in your heart whatsoever. I said, man, I said, there are holes all over in your walk and you're leading the flock and it's time for you to either come clean so we can help you or we got to make some hard decisions here. And he came clean. Like he immediately broke. And as an elder board, we grabbed him and we hugged him. And we put some stuff into play for him to start getting healthy again. And so he would do all of the steps that we asked him to do, but what would happen is they were done superficial level, and so nothing changed. Like the marriage didn't get better. The divisiveness didn't get better. Like all of the, all of the money that we put into him to date nights, like nothing changed. And so it finally came to a head, and we had to meet with him and said, hey, listen, um, we got to let you go. Like, we just got to let you go. And his response was really strong. He's like, hmm, this is interesting. He was always thought the one I'd be, I'd be the one quitting as opposed to you guys firing me. And you just saw it in his heart. And so, um, of course, he's involved in small groups. And so Elder Board comes on and starts to kind of muddle through the hope of the world that's in disaster. And so the lead pastor calls me up and he says, here's the deal. He said, he said, it's not our names that are being drugged through the mud. It's yours, Chris. And we would ask you just to steer clear of this because you're the bad guy in all of the small groups. And so I was standing in the kitchen and I'm like, man, I know that what we've done is right. And it's like, I'll, I'll steer clear. And so church is rocky, right? Like the hope of the world is the, not really being the hope of the world. But I'll never forget, it's about six months later, I'm driving down the street, I get a phone call from one of the guys who's involved, and he's like, hey, everything kind of hit the fan with him, and all of the stuff that was hidden in the dark has now come to light. And he's like, man, he's like, we're sorry for the way we treated you. And I pulled off on the side of the road, and I just wept. Not because all the stuff came to light, <laughs> but because of God's faithfulness. And because I kept my mouth shut, right? Now, let me give you, that's, that's the definition of being vindicated in righteousness. Like, that's the definition of being shown this in righteousness, right? Where the Lord fights for you and you don't have to. Now, let me show you the other side, all right? Just last week, on Tuesday, some people say some stuff to me that I'm like, you're wrong in this. Like, you're wrong but I'm going to submit. And so as it goes on, I get more and more angry, more and more fired up. Friday morning, a good friend of mine named Don Overton, who's a pastor in the church in Colorado. He's he's talking to me on the phone. He's like, hey, the Lord asked me to give you a call. He's like, I don't know why, but I just was prompting my spirit to call you. And so I just kind of filled him in on some stuff. And you know what his response was to me? He's like, Chris, I've listened to it all. And he said, sin is crouching at your door. You know what I said? No, it's not. Sin's crouching at their door. (laughs) Right? And he's like, man, he goes, Chris, sin is crouching at your door. And so I appreciated his time, and I sat down on the couch, and I thought, man, I have lost my freedom in the last 48 hours. Like, I've I've lost it. And, and the reason that I know that sin was crouching at my door is because I was in prison with this, right? Because I was trying to vindicate my name in righteousness. Are you tracking with that? And when that happens, guess what? Guess who gets, gets put in prison? Me. And this is what's playing out here. It's like when you fight for yourself, when you're fighting for your name, you're trying to vindicate yourself. And I would tell you the same thing that Don told me. It's like, man, sin is crouching at your door. But when you let the Lord fight for you, oh, it's so much more sweeter. Yeah. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Like, watch what he says in these verses and Psalms. I want you to count how many times he says me. He says, turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me, since you are my rock and my fortress. For the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. So I can help you. He does it 10 times. In three verses, the Lord's prayer is always about him, not against the people who are attacking him, Not the people who are beating him, not the people who are whipping him, not the people who are slandering him. And he has more concern for righteousness than any of us in this room, but yet he keeps his prayer solely on him. Are you following with that? And so if I can just lean into you for just a few more seconds, like the reason Jesus does this is because he wants us to know that from a good worldview that this gospel is not about you and me. Like the the problem that we see in the church and with ourselves is that when we read this text, we're like, man, this book is about me. And here's what I would say. The book is about you as a villain. Right? The true story of this book is about Jesus, his name, his glory, his renown, his fame, his power, and his willingness to come after us to make us heroes in his story. Are Are you tracking with that? And so change your worldview when you read the book. Like, we're not David and we're not Samuel. We're like the Israelites who are cowering in the corner that Christ still comes after to make us great for His namesake and for His renown. That's why He says, Do this, like, deliver me for your namesake. Because God is for himself and his glory and his power, and he will not give it up. And the reason he saves us is so that we become instruments of that. So it doesn't stop on us, but it rolls out of us on what Christ has done in our hearts. Are we tracking with this? And so then he gives up his spirit and he says, it's finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, here's the thing again, although the world sees a man battered and bruised in his spirit, in his heart, in his walk with the Lord, like he's white hot, like he's hot as a firecracker hanging on the cross. He is as hot as a firecracker. And so everybody looks at it and says, man, woe is he. But inside he's like, he's burning for the glory of the Lord. And I'm like, that's our role as well. Now, let me kind of Lean into you while this is so important. Because Jesus is not the only one to utter Psalms 31, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. You want to know who else has done it? Jeremiah did it. Jonah said the same words. Paul said them. Stephen says them. All right? All right? Like, why are all of these men saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? Like, we can keep going with this. Like, it doesn't just stop there. Like, Polycarp said it, all right? Anybody familiar with Polycarp? Yeah, Polycarp. He was the last known man to be discipled by an apostle, all right? So historically, Polycarp was discipled by John. So Polycarp's 86 years old which is a long time to live, he's, he's hanging out in this house, the Romans are coming for him, and the, his friends come to him and say, hey, the Romans are coming, if you don't pay tribute to Caesar, they're going to kill you. And so Polycarp gets up, he moves to another home. His friends come and say, hey, they know where you're at, they're coming for you. If you don't get up and leave, they're going to come back and kill you. And Polycarp says, Lord's will, Like it's, it's time for me to quit moving. And so the guards, they show up at the house. Polycarp comes downstairs and he asks the Roman soldiers to give him an hour to pray. So Polycarp goes and prays. Then he fixes a meal and he serves it to the Roman guards. Right? They take Polycarp before the magistrates. The magistrates do not want to kill him. Like, hear that. They don't want to kill him. But they're like, Polycarp, like, you're 86 years old. You've been nothing but good to us. But if you don't sit here and say that you're an atheist, we're going to have to kill you. Because in their minds, anyone who wouldn't call Caesar a god was an atheist. And so Polycarp stands up in front of the whole Senate and he goes, you're an atheist. And so they take him to kill him. They're fixing to nail him to a stake. And he said, there's no need to nail me because I'm not going to run. And then he utters Psalms 22 and they burn him alive. I'm sorry, Psalms 31. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The bystanders who were witnesses, so they never, he never really caught fire. They said he kind of turned into like a golden brown and they ended up having to stab him. It's historical, right? Polycarp's not the only one that would say this. John Huss. Jerome of Prague, John Rogers, Lawrence Sanders, John Hooper, Roland Taylor, William Hunter, Robert Farr, John Bradford, John Leaf, all of these men were heard uttering Psalms 31 before what? Right? So let me just kind of lean into this. Like these guys, they're, they're from 1500, like they're from the Reformation. All right? So quick history lesson in the Reformation. Church of Rome is here. King of England is over here. King of England has no belief system that we know of. And so the men who are under him, who are being trained at Oxford and Cambridge, they start rising up and they start reading the scriptures for real. And they're like, here's the deal. Like what this says is not necessarily what the church is teaching us. And what this says is that we're, we're justified by grace alone and not by our works. Like so that no man can boast of salvation. Like that's what it says. And so there were a group of men who began to preach this. They began to preach about against indulgences and against transubstantiation, which we don't have time for that, right? And they began to speak that the Word of God trumps any man. And so for five years, they picked up a lot of steam because people were like, yeah, that's exactly what it says. And then the king of England dies, right? And so as he passes on, his son, who is a believer, takes over and says, yeah, keep preaching your message. Keep preaching it. But he became ill really quick, and so he dies. And so guess who takes his place? Queen Mary. You might know her as Bloody Mary. All right? And so Bloody Mary's going to have nothing to do with this new reformation. And in fact, she's, she's loyal to the Church of Rome, and she's like anybody who preaches anything different than what comes out of Rome will be killed in the most heinous of ways, And so she in, she reintroduces what the Romans were doing. So in Rome, like to make sure that fear had instilled your heart, they would crucify people just along the road. So as you walked by and you saw people crucified, you'd be like, man, I'm, I'm not doing whatever they did. So Queen Mary does the same exact thing, except she doesn't use crucifixion. She was burning at the stake. And so every day she's burning people at stake the stake, and so here's the deal. These men have had five, six, seven years to build a following, and so the ones who had big followings had targets on their back for simply preaching what the gospel says. And so I want to read to you a couple of their stories because I think it's important for us to gain perspective on what's been paid for us because we stand on the shoulders of these men and women and the gospel that they preach, and I'm going to kind of take you into a little bit further into what Jesus teaches here. And so John Huss, he preached against indulgences and the sovereignty of the papal office with scripture being all there is, stolen scripture. They stripped him of his priestly garments and burned him alive at the stake. Jerome of Prague, he too preached against the selling of indulgences and that scripture alone was to be taught. They shackled him with heavy chains and eventually recanted. He was brought before the public and told to recant, but this time he would not do it for the Lord had strengthened him. They built a devil's mask for him, put it on him, and would not allow him to speak. They burned him at the stake, and because he was in such good shape, he suffered greatly. John Rogers, under Bloody Mary, for saying that the Bible takes authority over man, was burned to the stake in front of his wife and ten children. History tells us the streets were filled with believers cheering and encouraging him on. By God's great mercy, he died with comparative ease. John Hooper, the following day, 7,000 faithful attended his burning at the stake. He was noted to have the king's ear and his dinner table was open to the poor. He was beloved by the people. and As they strapped him to the pole, they hung bags of gunpowder to his arms. The fire was built so poorly that he suffered 45 minutes before he passed, having both his legs and one arm burnt off before passing to glory. Robert Farr, four days later, would not recant his belief in Sola Scripture. Shortly before his martyrdom, the son of a knight came to console Far and grieved for the awful pain he was about to undergo. Far assured him that God would enable him to endure, adding that if he once saw him stir in pain amidst the flames, then his teaching could be ignored. As he believed, so he spoke, and God endorsed his faith mightily. Far stood without flinching as his uplifted arms burned to stumps, only dying after being struck down in mercy by an onlooker. And so the noble martyr rose to glory. John Leaf. Nineteen-year-old kid. It was a simple candlemaker. They caught him in a church praying. So they bring John Leaf in. You may know John Leaf. They call him John the Lionhearted. And so they bring John in. And Bloody Mary had convened this whole council of bishops. And so everybody that was put to the stake had to stand in front of these bishops. Most of the bishops had to retire because they could not handle it anymore. And it says that this John Leaf, they said he stood like a rock before them. Like they're like his depth of scripture just challenged them to the court where they couldn't fight him anymore. And so they sent him to prison with two pieces of paper. One paper that said that he would recant everything he just said and they would let him go. Or the other one says that he would not recant and they would burn him at the stake. It says much to their amazement, he could neither read nor write. And so he didn't know what those papers were. So they brought him back. And everyone said in that tribune, that tribunal, was amazed that he could defend the gospel without ever having to read it. They couldn't believe it. And so they read his two statements for him, the one of recantation and the one of him confessing that what he just said was going to send him to the stake. And he said, "Since so I can neither read nor write. Will you please bring me a pen? They brought him a pen, he poked his finger, and he sprinkled blood on the parchment that said his confession in Jesus was for real, and they burned him alive. Uttering, Psalms 31. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Why is this verse so powerful for these men? Like, why should it be powerful for us? What do they know that you and I don't know? Like these guys were standing and dying strictly for theology. What do they know that we didn't know that would allow them to stand like this? I want to take you into John 8, to what Jesus says about the believer. In John 8, verse 48, it says this. It says, the Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know you are demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. No self-vindication here. My father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day He saw it and was glad. You are not 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, Jesus isn't saying before Abraham was born, I am, meaning that he was. It's not an argument for his preexistence, although it could be. The words here indicate he's using the same name as Yeshua. He's saying before Abraham was, I am God. Now, the crazy thing about this is that Jesus just said that anybody who is in my word, anyone who obeys my word, knows my word, will never taste death. And the Pharisees, they respond, there by going, who are you that you can say that no one will ever see death? And Jesus doesn't correct them. like He doesn't correct them. He's like, taste, see, same thing. Now, in your Bible, in the original text, there are two separate words. Taste and see are two separate words. One means that you actually behold of. The other one means that you partake in. And Jesus says that if you are in him, you neither do either one. You neither behold this or you partake in this. Now, here's the thing. I don't know what this means, but here's what I can speculate. I can speculate that if I'm in Christ, which I am, that I will never see it. Taste it, partake of it, witness it with my eyes like it will not happen for me. Like somewhere along the line, whether it's in a moment of lightning or a long term, like Jesus himself or his angels are going to come and get me before that moment comes. And I think there's such power in this that says you will not partake in this. You will not behold of it. You will not see it. Let the cancer come like let you die tragically. But what he says is that at no circumstance will your eyes understand what it means to die. It won't happen. Same for Polycarp, same for Jesus, same for John Huss, same for the Lionheart, same for you and me, if the word is in us. Now, who's the word? Jesus. He's like, you will never hear it. You will never see it. It will never be a part of you. Suffering? Yes. up until the brink? Maybe. But will it come for you? Never. Otherwise he's a liar. And everything we based our claims on, we can go home and watch TV. But I believe it. I believe these men knew it. And although they suffered, they never partook, they never beheld, like it never happened. So why why do I teach this to you? Like, why do I think this is important for us? Because, man, we we have no context for being burned at the stake, right? Like, I I get that. I have no context for this. But what I do know is this. Sometimes following Christ is very difficult. Like, people don't understand you. Like, they don't see the freedom in you. and And sometimes you beat your own self up because you're supposed to be walking into freedom that maybe you don't have yet. And what I want to say to you is, man... Don't give up. Like, don't stop. Like, your eternity has been written for you. So don't give up. If your husband leaves you or he doesn't leave you, don't stop. Man, if if people hate you for just trying to sharpen them, don't give up. If you get tired of getting up early to come to church on Sunday morning, don't give up. Man, if you want to be all that you can be and you're inside of a discipling group, then don't give up. Like, fight for what Christ has made you to be. He goes even further with us in this. And man, I think we got to read this. Like take into account Revelation 14. And here's what he says to us. He says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the honor of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening water of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Verse 13 And let this verse root in you. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Like this is the end. He's like, two things for you. Like He's like, don't give up. You keep fighting. And at the end of the day, When all has settled, you will find your rest and everything you've done will follow you. It's a different picture than what the Roman church was teaching. They were preaching first to do the work. And what these guys were saying was like, no, man, you love the Lord with all your heart, soul and mind. And because of that, it changes who you are and it changes what people do around you. And if I can lean into you for just a second, like in this text, like this, this whole idea of like fear of, of, of anything. Like some of us are afraid to fly, afraid of what we eat, afraid of traveling here, afraid of traveling there. And man, find your solace in this. Like the Lord himself says that all of your days are numbered. You will not go before that day is finished if you're walking in his will. And when you do, you're not even going to taste death. So what, my friends, are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? I've kind of titled this thing like perspective because, man, like sometimes we get caught up in our own daily life when there's so much more unfolding in front of our very eyes that we just can't see. We just can't see it. There are still martyrs dying every few minutes here. And man, praise God that that hasn't been our call yet, right? But it doesn't detain the fact that, man, you walk through something. It doesn't change the truth. It doesn't change anything. All the hairs on your head are numbered. Every day has been ordained. And if you know him, you will not see, taste. Partake, look upon whatever word you want to use for death, like it will not happen. So my friends, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Who are you afraid of? Why are you afraid to get involved? Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid to get baptized? Why are you afraid to serve? Why are you afraid to share the gospel with someone? Like, what are you afraid of? This man, what Jesus wants to say to you is, no need, no need. Just remember the truth of what I spoke to you, and that's the only thing we want to do, is just to continue, just to refresh the truth of what God has spoke to you. That's it. Like I think you can smile. You're never gonna die. Never. Is the Lord good? It's good. And so I'm going to pause there. Chad's just going to sing a song over you guys. We're going to put some statistics up on the screen just so you can kind of read some things that are happening around the world. But man, I want you to be encouraged. I want your heart to be full of Jesus. And one of these days, for you to say the same thing, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then when you're standing in front of the Lord of all the earth, for him to say to you, well done yeah can you imagine John Huss he's got no arms or legs but he doesn't need them the Lord himself going well done yeah and everyone in this house said